Hello, I'm Nadia Singh, and welcome to IDSA's COVID-19 podcast series, which aims to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during this pandemic by speaking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. In this episode, we'll be discussing the toll the COVID-19 pandemic is taking on the Latinx community and the steps necessary to alleviate the disparities felt by that population. To examine this are IDSA members Dr. Vincent Guillermo Ramos of New York University and the director of the Center for Latino Adolescent and Family Health, and Dr. Raul Macias-Gill with Brown University. Thank you both so much for joining us. Dr. Guillermo Ramos, I'd like to start with you. Even with the Affordable Care Act, the Latinx community is 2.5 times more likely to be uninsured than their white counterparts. What are the challenges Latinx communities face in accessing health care and other services. You know, the Latino Hispanic community is the largest racial ethnic minority community in the United States. And when we think about the overall numbers of uh, Latinos, Hispanics are roughly 59 million representing just about one in five people in the US. Uh, About half of the Latino community is under the age of 30. And if we think about projections for the future, about uh, 30% of the overall US population will be Latino Hispanic by 2060. And so for me, the issues of insurance are, are really critical. About 55% of Hispanic Latinos are estimated to have inadequate insurance status. And when I reference inadequate, what I'm specifically talking about is either they're uninsured, they're underinsured, or they had a service gap. And I think a lot of the discourse focuses on not being insured, but I think it's also important, particularly as it relates to COVID-19, this idea of underinsurance. You know, that Latino, Hispanic are sort of overrepresented in sort of uh, the employment sectors where they may have inadequate insurance. And so specifically things like construction or farming or sort of uh, fishing, food preparation. And so those are typically service sector jobs where the insurance may not be offered or may be that they have inadequate insurance. What can medical professionals do to provide culturally competent care? Dr. Gill? If I were to phrase a little bit this question differently, it would be what would the institutions should do to provide culturally competent care? Because this is a systemic level. We have to recognize that importance of diversity in the healthcare workforce. So that is the first step to kind of like um, think about how can we serve our patients better, our uh, minority groups, not only Hispanic, Latinx communities, but also other immigrants. Then we move on to perhaps some implementation and expansion of committees or task force in in these uh, healthcare settings that can increase diversity, inclusion, access, and equity across all levels of the care for patients. And also responsibilities, we're talking about like increasing diversity from the C-suite to healthcare providers, registration, staff, et cetera. And uh, these increasing diversity may uh, help match our patients and our minorities' uh, cultural needs. Also, managing language services uh, for a more accessible opportunities for our patients. And in terms of like healthcare professionals, I feel like, you know, we are in the front of this pandemic and we really need to recognize the 
high need to address the implicit bias uh, amongst ourselves and, and, and uh, amongst our um, co-workers and, and our institutions. Moving on to that, I think, uh, especially for patients with COVID-19, I think it's very important, if not crucial, to understand the patient's medical and social backgrounds. Um, since, uh, as we know, understanding the patient's medical history um, may give us a clue of how good or bad outcomes they're gonna have. And also understanding their social backgrounds will help us understand as well as what is gonna happen to these patients once they leave the hospital and what is, it gonna, what is their care post-hospitalization gonna be like in their environment, in their community. So um, understanding all these levels of patient care I think by increasing diversity in our, in our healthcare workforce would um, eventually provide a more efficient and, and better patient care. There are specific things that, that providers can actually do. One is to recognize the, the role of implicit bias and that it does in fact occur. And that often uh, when we look at Latino community uh, and also, for that matter, other people of color, they typically will report shorter interactions with their providers and that it's important for providers to not sort of fall into that potential trap of having shorter interactions and that, uh, you know, we try to have patient-centered communication. Thank you both for raising those points. Dr. Guillermo Ramos, I'd like to come back to you. What are your thoughts around access to COVID-19 trials and compassionate use programs as they relate to the Latinx community? First and foremost, I think there needs to be some recognition that there is, there's a bit of a debate about compassionate use for extended access programs. And I think the debate goes something like, is this uh, really treatment uh, or is there more of a research or investigational aspect to it? I personally don't think that those things need to be um, not, they, they're sort of not mutually exclusive. I think that overall it's important to recognize that we need to have greater involvement of Hispanic Latinos in clinical research. If we think about, for example, NIH, some of the recent data that I've seen is that roughly about 10% of all the participants that have been enrolled in clinical research, and that includes sort of randomized clinical trials and other forms of clinical research, that about 10% are Hispanic Latino. I think that that's really sort of, sort of under enrollment and you know issues of accessibility, particularly as it pertains to lack of awareness of the clinical trials, or maybe some of the selection issues and some of the issues that potentially sort of make it harder. If the criteria for the compassionate access don't allow for Latinos to be involved, perhaps there are criteria stipulated that uh, one can have certain comorbidities. And so when we think about things like diabetes or HIV, or substance misuse, or HCV, et cetera, that some of those things may be more common in Latinx, Hispanic community, and for that matter, other communities of color, and that those selection issues can potentially serve as barriers as well. And then I think, as Dr. Hill was saying, in relation to culturally competent services, I think that this issue of implicit bias and really addressing head-on that the compassionate access programs exist and not uh, excluding uh, those programs from the Latinx community. And, you know, when I think about, so what's been written about this, there is a tendency for 
healthcare providers, it's an act implicit bias, particularly within the context of what you're asking, compassionate use, that they may focus on the voluntary nature of participating more than the real purpose and the potential benefits as well as the risk. And so again, this speaks to having informed consent and then also ensuring that the settings where Latinos, Latinx are getting care are settings that are also uh, sites where they can have access to compassionate use or extended use programs. One of the things that I am fully aware of and what I'm concerned about is how accessible these treatments are for our community, specifically the Latinx community. I am not 100% sure of how these, uh, you know, like um, remdesivir, for example, is being distributed in the U.S. But um, I do have some experience, uh, and this is just based in our hospital here in Rhode Island, on how we try to do our best in terms of distributing these drugs equitably Uh, One of the things that I became more aware as we were offering these compassionate use medications was the two things. One is the fact that there's going to be a a, a very good language concordance in terms of how is this drug being offered to our patients so that you kind of stay away from the stigma of are you experimenting with me or are you studying this drug on me? So that is uh, something that we have uh, had a few challenges, especially in our Latinx community because of that stigma of patients thinking that uh, we uh, providers are experimenting new drugs on them. And I feel like you know, if anything, there's going to be a lot of experience in terms of how we are offering these drugs in a most culturally competent way, according to our patients' uh, levels of understanding, even educational level, if you wish, so that they can uh, understand what is the purpose of these uh, trials or of these uh, extended or compassionate use programs. Certainly eye-opening perspectives from both of you. Thank you, doctors. Eight million Latinx workers are at higher risk of losing their job as a result of working in industries acutely affected by COVID-19, including meatpacking plants, restaurants, hotels, and other service sector positions. How should individuals who work in such environments protect themselves, and what should their employers be doing to make those environments safer? Dr. Gill, I'd like to start with you. There's two different aspects in this question. And the one, uh, the first one is how are we going to protect our patients or our health uh, workers? And the other one is uh, what is what the employers need to do. And all these goes back to uh, what the WHO, CDC recommend in terms of um, how to protect yourself and others. And I will touch a little bit on that because uh, I feel like there are certain recommendations that may not fully fit for all patients or all people across the U.S. And, and, and the reason I'm saying that is because it depends what type of work you are doing. If we're talking about a, uh, an essential, essential worker that um, needs to work in a hospital versus someone who's working at a meatpacking plant or restaurants, you must follow the precautions that um, CDC and WHO recommend, which is a uh, frequent hand washing, uh, the using the hand sanitizer 60%, trying to uh, keep the distancing measures as possible, uh, wearing a mask or any other device or 
plot that you can do it yourself to protect your nose and mouth. Avoid touching surfaces that are highly touched by other people and cleaning and disinfecting uh, high frequent touch surfaces such as tables, chairs, handles, uh, you know, and uh, needless to say, but covering your cough and sneezes. Following those recommendations from CDC uh, will help. As I said, um, in certain environments more than others, uh, these recommendations may have to be adjusted. And that's as far as like people working. And then in terms of employers, there's gonna be a huge uh, implementation as for an infectious disease uh, preparedness response or contingency plans so that these employers can um, adhere to certain protocols. And some of them had already had experience from the uh, previous pandemics, the H1N1 back in uh, April 2009. But new companies uh, may have to just start uh, or inventing the wheel, I should say. For that, the first step is to identify sick uh, workers or those at high risk of acquiring infection. In these categories, we're talking about patients who are immunocompromised, who have um, who take chronic steroids, who have had a transplant, or who have to go back and uh, take care of uh, these type of patients at home. And secondly, they have to develop and implement, and most importantly, communicate workplace protections and flexibilities amongst their workers. And that is um, encouraging sick workers to stay at home if possible, develop you know, punitive uh, leave policies, um, encourage workers to communicate their needs, concerns, or um, if they need to stay at home, or if they have to be at home caring for an ill family member. Finally, we should also be aware of our workers' uh, concerns about pay, leave, safety, because we know that, especially in the Latinx community, that uh, the majority of our patients, if they don't work, then they won't have um, something to eat the next week. And so uh, I feel like uh, workers, employers, have, have I mean, employees have to be very aware of these workers, um, not only uh, personal, but also uh, family and social environments and, and perhaps uh, prepare something for them too. If you think about the most uh, recent Bureau of Labor Statistics survey data on, on unemployment, the Latinx uh, Hispanic community in the U.S., it's, it's a little over 17%. This is the highest unemployment of all reported race ethnicities uh, in the U.S. And if you think about around this time last year, uh, the Latino Latinx uh, unemployment rate was at 4.2%. And so it's really important to recognize that issues of unemployment uh, and COVID are definitely impacting uh, the Latino community. Um, I also want to add that uh, some recent data that I came across that came out from Pew um, actually highlights that the Latinx community was the least likely among all, all the groups that were surveyed to actually have the option to telework. And so uh, more sort of classified as essential workers. Uh, and I think what's interesting about that is that prior to COVID-19, a lot of what we deem as essential workers particularly as it relates to the Latinx community, would have been labeled low-skilled labor. And post uh, COVID-19 or during uh, our sort of global pandemic, certainly in the U.S., a lot of the primary sectors where the Latinx community is employed are now deemed uh, essential workforce. 
I think Dr. Hill did a great job at sort of identifying all the things that employers can do to risk, uh, to minimize the risk of transmission. I want to just highlight one additional point that I think is worth mentioning. In the United States, uh, the Latinx community is more likely to live in households uh, with a sort of larger or extended family members. And I think this is critical because it's important to think about how our guidelines, whether they come from uh, the CDC or other uh, sort of COVID-19 guidelines, how do we think about social distancing? How do we think about uh, isolation? Uh, self-quarantining, and in general, the kinds of basic uh, kinds of tools that represent sort of the core way in which we're trying to respond to the epidemic in our country. Uh, when we start getting into some of the realities of, uh, you know, the large segments of the Latinx community, a lot of the guidance that is out there, it kind of is bent uh, more so to, I would argue, sort of middle upper class families where they it may be more feasible to adopt some of these strategies where issues around uh, being a member of a disadvantaged community, uh, you know, don't, they're not so pronounced, they're not so reflected in the guidelines. And so I think it's important to really uh, keep in mind that there are underlying contextual drivers. And I guess just to wrap up, I guess for me, one of the main points that I would love to just end on is that the novel sort of coronavirus pandemic, it's really exacerbated pre-existing inequities in the Latinx community and that these uh, outcomes that we see that are COVID related really speak to socioeconomic disadvantage, access to life opportunities, issues around healthcare insurance, and really they sort of provide uh, perspective, considering that the Latinx community is the largest and certainly among the fastest growing, uh, and that what happens uh, in the Latinx community has big implications for the overall long-term health and well-being of the United States. Thank you for your answers, doctors. Moving on to the next question, which is directed to both of you. What strategies do you recommend for improving healthcare outcomes for the Latinx community during the pandemic? And beyond. This is a systemic problem. We are seeing the most disadvantaged, the less represented, the the ones with more comorbidities getting hard hit by COVID-19. And so I feel like um, there can be certain ways to approach this um, problem. And one of the thoughts that I had was uh, perhaps to start with the prevention uh, part of it. So if we uh, have a prompt, effective, and sustained health communication and outreach to inform COVID-19 prevention efforts in the Latinx population uh, that is linguistically and culturally congruent, sensitive to histories, legacies, or prevailing attitudes on our patients uh, across um, our community, then I, I, I feel like that will be the, the first part of it. So communicating, making them understand what this means, what is a pandemic, and, 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 what, are, and what are we uh, at risk of. Secondly, I think there's going to be a strong engagement and uh, establishment of trust between um, uh, community partners um, that uh, where patients themselves can feel identified, they can trust in order to deliver optimal linkage to high quality care for patients at high risk for um, acquiring this infection or to have bad outcomes, and that is if they have 
uh, other comorbidities. I believe that um, we don't really we don't really talk a lot about it, but um, equitable and full access to uh, testing is a very important uh, point, and especially in uh, and, and, and during this pandemic, to better understand uh, what is the extent of uh, COVID-19 of this pandemic and other communities that um, uh, don't have access to testing and uh, how badly are they being affected by um, this infection. I uh, also believe that um, adequate and flexible access to any healthcare setting, either ambulatory or inpatient hospital care for these community members, um, including the Medicaid expansion is not only um, important but is necessary to uh, more effectively treat patients who have been affected by COVID-19. And finally, um, you know, we like to practice based on evidence and, and, and in order for us to have evidence with data, to have a better understanding of the impact again of these disease, we have, effective, we have to have effective data collection on testing, on cases, on hospitalizations with disclosure of the race and ethnicity because many states are not doing it. And so that we can have a more granular analysis of these factors and, and uh, perhaps understand better how we can uh, prevent it, treat it, and uh, avoid it in the future. Sort of addressing the underlying contextual drivers of long-standing health uh, inequalities among the Latinx uh, community, I think that has to be sort of front and center. Uh, in my view, I think that these uh, health inequities have been largely invisible. They've been overlooked, uh, inadequately addressed. I think they warrant uh, sort of further uh, attention and you know I think we need to sort of prioritize future prevention and control efforts as it relates to COVID and other health issues uh, more squarely on the needs of the Latinx community. I would say um, that when I think about the workforce uh, I want to expand into thinking about the importance of having a workforce that has expertise in social care. And so uh, for the Latinx community, the use of community health workers or social service navigators or even social workers, uh, individuals that can integrate with the traditional services that are provided, the medical services that can help facilitate sort of addressing service gaps or needs that the Latinx community has. And then I would also argue that for me, um, culturally competent care is really culturally appropriate care. And when I think of the term culturally appropriate, I think it moves well beyond sensitivity and knowledge. And it really speaks to changing the way that services are delivered and being willing to adjust the health delivery system to actually meet the needs of the Latinx community. And even beyond that, and this is something that I've noted that has been um, a kind of debate in the infectious disease world as it pertains to COVID and some of the other sort of contemporary issues that are going on right now around race uh, and ethnicity in our country. This issue of advocacy, and I would argue that culturally appropriate care means uh, being an advocate and it means being willing to stand up uh, and identify when there are service gaps and where systems do not respond to the needs of the patients that we're trying to care for. 
At this time, I'd like to thank Drs. Guillermo Ramos and Macias Gill for their time, participation, and expertise. For the latest information and resources on the COVID-19 pandemic, visit IDSA's website, idsociety.org, and don't forget to follow us on social media. Tune in next time as another diverse panel of medical experts discusses the latest on this rapidly evolving pandemic. I'm Nadia Singh.